Hi, and welcome to How to Ruin Dinner. I'm here today with Dr. Constanza Lopez, and she has an amazing project she works with here at UNF called Embroidering for Peace and Memory. And that's how I got to meet Dr. Constanza um, through the the hanging of the um, embroidered pieces of muslin. Is it, it's just muslin that they're embroidered on the? Or, yeah, it's a cotton, um, you know, bandana size cotton. Um, yeah, just they yeah. they look like dish towels to me. Dish towels too. We use those too. Yeah, yeah. So I hope we'll get to talk about that a little bit and that intersection of women's work and women's art that came to my mind as I was looking at them. But first, before we get too involved in that, do you want to walk us through your career and your academic interests and your department? Okay. So I'm Dr. Constanza Lopez. I'm an associate professor at the Languages, Literatures, and Cultures Department. I um, graduated from... um, the uh, CUNY Graduate Center, the City University of New York, uh, with a PhD in uh, Spanish literature. I analyzed in my dissertation testimonial narratives of women who fought in the different armies in Colombia, legal and illegal. And I wanted to know why women joined the war. And I discover uh, about testimonial narratives and what they had to tell us about the country, but about the lives of women as mothers, as part of society, um, women who wanted to break the traditional roles that were assigned to them. Um, and many of them joined the war because of that, because they wanted to do something different for the country and because they wanted to be independent from their families. Uh, they didn't see any other way of leaving that traditional role that was imposed on them. So that, the, so that um, in some ways, war and revolution offer them pathways to f- a life that otherwise would be closed to them. Is that... It offered them certain freedom when I discovered that they were able to, um, you know, be decide over their own bodies if they wanted to be mothers or not, if they wanted to be um, sexually active. You know, back then when we're talking about the seventies and eighties, it was it was really hard for women to um, take, be in control of their own bodies. And um, even basic things like that, you know, even studying what they wanted to, you know, uh, if a lot of them were anthropologists, a lot of them were uh, writers and poets, and they felt that the armed struggle gave them that freedom, right? Later, they paid the price of that freedom because they realized that even in their armed struggle, the same structures of um, of sexism and patriarchy continued to work against them. 
the leaders of the revolution usually, you know, although they spoke about freedom of, of the women and they spoke about uh, you are able to do whatever you want, they still took that to their advantage. A lot of them became their lovers. A lot of them became their, um, you know, mothers of their children, and they ended up performing the same traditional roles. But through the act of writing, what I realized was that that's when they found that liberation. And, uh, and then at that point, I started thinking about their children because when they were writing about themselves and what they went through, they also spoke about all these children that were the children of the armed struggle, the children of the war. And I started thinking, you know, Yes, we had all these years of armed conflict in Colombia from the 1960s until 2016 when we signed the peace agreement. And throughout all that time, no one is talking about what happened to the youth, right? What is it to be a youth in the middle of of this terrible devastation of forced displacement, forced disappearance, inequality, and I decided that my second project was to research youth. So I went to Colombia and I found groups of very young people who expressed themselves and their frustrations and their discomfort through art. And one of the biggest ways or the easiest ways for people to express this is through hip hop. So um, when I talked to the, um, these people, you know, they, they said, well, for hip hop, you don't need anything. You need a floor so you can dance and dance all the frustration that you have and all that aggression that you feel and, and express it through your body. And that was amazing because a lot of them as children saw um, how their friends were being killed on the streets just because they crossed an invisible line or because of the dynamics of the war that enter neighborhoods. Uh, if you don't belong to this group, then, you know, you're my enemy and things like that. Uh, they also found that through graffiti, they were able to take over spaces that used to belong uh, to uh, armed groups. So, for example, when they saw a park, they decided to paint a wall. And if no one said anything, they will paint another wall and then the other wall. And then all of a sudden, this became a space where they could come and dance and paint and start emceeing. And they began to express all that. You know, the, the, the interesting thing about hip hop is like it works like the news of the neighborhood. So everything that happens in the neighborhood is there. So I'm talking about hip hop before it's commercialized and, and become the phenomenon that we have in the United States. You know, that original way of poetry from the streets, right? Which is very raw and real. Um, another thing that I found out is that um, although I was researching about youth, the women were the ones who served as inspiration for the youth. You know, they were in about 2002, 
they were military operations happening in certain neighborhoods in Colombia, especially in Medellin. And uh, when I talk about armed conflict, armed conflict doesn't affect everybody equally. Um, the rich people can live in the rich neighborhoods and go to the shopping malls and drive their cars and nothing happens to them. But when you go to the poor neighborhoods where marginalized people live, this is where the war really is located. And um, there were these military operations, in, uh, particularly in Comuna 13 in Medellin, where the military will come with helicopters and start shooting down at the neighborhoods, trying to get all the armed groups out of there. But, of course, there were a lot of civilians in the middle of the, of the conflict. So women will come out with um, white sheets and say, we are, you know, the people, we are peaceful, please don't kill us, don't shoot us. You know, what you're hurting is the, the children and, and the people. So they so were waving the white flag waving as it were, them, the traditional, yeah. you know, th th we're, we're not a part of this conflict, so the sign or symbol of surrender in some sense, right? Yes. Um, but it sounds like in this case, it's not surrender, it's a reclamation. This is our space. This is the people that you're hurting. You know, this is not your enemy, right? And uh, and they didn't have flags. They had their sheets and their and their rags and their towels and their t-shirts, and that's what they were waving. Um, and there were these very courageous women in the neighborhoods that actually were the ones that that protected the young people. You know, I have heard stories of. Um, rappers that will be on the streets and then armed groups will come and try to recruit these young people. But it's the, it was the women who will say, so-and-so, uh, come over here, come and drink some juice with me. Let me make you... And then when the armed groups knew that this kid was protected by the women of the neighborhood, they would leave the, the, the kids alone and they wouldn't take them. So it, it was the women who defended their territories. And women also defended their territories by getting together and doing sewing, embroidering. They got together to do blankets and flags about, you know, what was happening to them, about... Um, You know, they, let's, let's, let's write the names of all the victims of these territories. Let's, uh, with thread, right, and, and rags. Madame de Farge, yeah. right, knitting the names into the, of the, of the revolution, into the, her, their scarves or whatever. Exactly, exactly. And it's women who utilize whatever resources they have and make them into a political you know, a, a political statement, right? And and then the kids grew up under this influence, right? Influence of, of very strong women. So when I, um, years ago, I started teaching a course that is very popular here at UNF. It's called Women and Violence in Latin American Literature and Film. And when I started 
teaching the course, I felt that students sometimes felt discouraged or really sad about what was happening, learning about all these terrible things that happened to others, right? And realizing that we are very privileged in so many ways because it's not that there is no violence here. There is a lot of violence here, uh, but it doesn't happen to us. It happens to people that are also as marginalized as people in, in, in Latin America or in Africa or in Europe or wherever. There is always marginal people that suffer the consequences of, of war and hunger and, and, and lack of education. Yeah, everything. Uh, uh, you know, we look at our jail system. We look at any system and then we'll see who is oppressing, who is not. So learning about this can be really traumatic. And I didn't want to do that because I want to empower people. And I want to empower people to act. We need to um, be the voice many times of, of things that are happening around the world. I mean, we cannot, we live in a world that is connected and we see how our actions affect others in it's undeniable, you know, especially through social media. You know that if something happens in another part of the world, it, 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 it comes back to us. So I wanted to teach about resilience. I wanted to teach about um, how creative people are and how creativity is really empowering. How it doesn't matter if you study whatever, you're a doctor, you can be an engineer, you can be a, a professor. If you are not creative, you're not going to make an impact because it is thinking out of the box that makes, um, that, that, that really helps you and that really makes you as a person, right? We have um, a short life. You know, we are only here for a few uh, years, if we're lucky, and how can we make an impact on not in the world, but in the world of the people that surround us, right? Um, I think it's through creativity. Yeah, I, I mean, this semester, the theme of the podcast is the art, the artist, excuse me, the artist. And what I've been asking artists, you know, what is what is your art mean to you? What is art? And you're talking about a very, it sounds to me like you're talking about art as the process of engaging creatively in the struggle of humanity or the struggle to be, you know, to flourish. And um, I, I think when I saw those those white rags with the beautiful embroidery and the powerful messages on that embroidery. It wasn't just seeing um, the object, the finished object, but the students in the chairs and uh, at the tables doing the art that was so moving. And there was this wide array of skill set, right, that you could see on the different flags that were hanging. Some people were extraordinary 
uh, embroiderers, and they had beautiful flowers, and others had really basic stitches but with powerful messages on them. And so when you're talking about the hip-hop as this expression of the anger and this expression of the frustration, and you're talking about the embroidery and the women's acts, it is art as process rather than product that I, th I think sometimes gets lost in the perfection that we seek or the beauty maybe even that we seek in art. Um, has it changed the way you think about what it means to be creative, this yeah. work you do? Yeah, because, you know, obviously when you were in college and when you go to museums, you know what art is, and it's this production that is that is beautiful and that I appreciate very much. You know, I love going to—I was just in New York, and I love going to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. But there are different forms of art. There is art for the sake of art, and that is the thing that, that we believe that is beautiful and that is aesthetically pleasing, but it's also there is art that shows commitment— and that is when it's not the art, it's not the beauty of the art, it's the beauty of the collective voice that um, it's useful and beautiful at the same time, right? And powerful, and right? And powerful, yeah. But yeah, it's just that. It's that, um, you know, as a collective, we are very, very powerful. And it doesn't matter if one of them is the most beautiful flower, and the other one is, well, the stitches are a little, you know, off here and there, or maybe I was not straight in my words, is how all of this together really, really make an impact. And I have seen that in Latin America. I didn't know when I started doing it here at UNF that it was going to be like that. But to realize that, the students, our students have this powerful voice that you don't hear that much here in our campus because people are doing their own things. I don't think that there are many opportunities for people from different colleges to get together uh, from different fields. I don't think that there are all these opportunities to be creative together. And that is something that I found very powerful uh, from the first time that, that I did it. Also, once we started doing it, I didn't want to do something only that reflected the Hispanic community. I am inspired by it. I'm inspired by the women in Mexico who started this movement called Embroidering for Peace. And they were writing the names of their uh, daughters who disappeared, daughters who were victims of femicide. And I was very inspired by the women of Chile who during the dictatorship made this beautiful art named Arpilleras in which they saw the stories that they couldn't speak of because they were living under dictatorship. So they couldn't put many words into their artwork, but they were rep representing things. So all of that was in my mind. But when I brought it to UNF, I realized, okay, we have students who care about so many topics, right? And what is it that they care about? So we started collecting all the pieces and putting them in a website. And we made collections. 
And there are about 20 collections. I can tell you that our students care about the environment greatly. They care about mental health because it's something that affects them on a daily basis. They care about LGBT plus matters. They care about equality. Um, they also embroider up against violence and, and bullying. And uh, they want to um, discuss uh, controversial topics such as immigration and the right to uh, women's, you know, you know, to their own bodies, to take, to take control of their own bodies. So there is uh, a lot of people here who who have expressed themselves, and all those things are also having a conversation in, you know, with the people who come and see them. You know, like you pass by and you look at it, and it's a dialogue that you have with the art that you can see. Um, yeah, I found that very powerful to see all the students engaged in their work with others, um, and you could see them talking, and the the concentration was, I found, very inspiring. And the idea that art is both creative in the sense that you are making something, um, but also creates this spirit of community. Um, and because you hang all those up around for everybody to read and see, you feel the power of the art, right? And um, it it takes art out of the museum and brings it into to our everyday life, or just our walking around campus life. And you engage um, with with the process as much as with the product. Um, and I, I, you just can't see that and see all those students engaged in it and not think this expands the mind. This expands the way we think about the world, right? By seeing all those different concerns that you were mentioning, the environment and mental health and on and on and on. They were, they were just so many of them that it was powerful, right? That, that art is a form of, or making art is a form of not just self-expression, but empowerment that, that was very moving. Yeah, I've been reading a lot about um, these theories from the South, from Latin America, and it's called Buen Vivir, The Good Living, and a lot of these theorists work in conjunc conjunction with their environment. And uh, some of the most important voices talk about how you cannot separate feeling and thought and how you have to work with it together. And sometimes in academia, we think about, okay, don't talk about your feelings, talk about what you're thinking. But can you really separate them? I... I am more and more convinced that you not only you cannot, but you shouldn't, right? And uh, especially for women in academia, right? For us, uh, you know, we we wanted to follow the voice of reason, which is the voice of the male, right? Um, we are too, you know, sentimental, and maybe we should avoid that. 
And then, and then the more I think about it, you know, uh, the more I think, no, it is the feeling that together with the thinking can make something great and make a person complete, right? You cannot have one and not the other. Also, you don't want to be all feeling and not thinking. You, you, you know, you need both. It's, it's, it's both of them in conjunction. I think that a project like this, um, it's so important also because students sometimes are so lonely and mm-hmm. they go to class and they are affected by all the work they have to do and they don't have a balance in their careers and sometimes we push them too hard to take all the really heavy classes together because they need to finish as soon as possible. Yeah, that pressure to finish is intense. It's a real thing, and the students suffer. And I think that if we can pause and center ourselves by doing something creative and good, it just, it just makes a big difference in everybody's life. Yeah. I I wonder if you could um, talk a little bit about religion. That's my area of study is, is in religious studies and philosophy. And um, so much of art, um, especially in Western culture, but also in Latin American culture, was pa- uh, patronized by the church um, and was um, reflected— the church's power and purpose. Um, And I wonder if you can talk about ways in which art has moved away from the devotional kind of uh, influences that were were standard for so long. And and maybe, I I haven't studied this part enough, but maybe um, created a sense of reverence for art itself that diminished its creative potential or its political potential in some ways. Um, And by political, I don't mean like, I don't mean the sense of political as parties, but rather the political as a communal expression of our needs and desires um, to live harmoniously with one another. Yeah, I mean, one of the things about the church in Latin America is that um, it's so difficult because part of the church in Latin America was a supporter of the higher classes and the political uh, governments, you know, dictatorships and all of that. And then there was this other part of the church in Latin America that said, especially in the 1960s, they said, no, we need to go back to being a church for the people. So there was a, a big debate. Then it became a political thing between right and left and these priests were uh, leftists and these ones were from extreme right. And so everything becomes that uh, party uh, divide that, that we um, dislike so much. Um, but the priests that went with the people, uh, 
it was due to them that a lot of these women were able to meet because they couldn't meet anywhere else, especially during the dictatorship in Chile, for example. They just couldn't get together. It was forbidden for groups to get together. But they could go to church. But they could go to the church and they could meet there. And it was through the church that they were able to get the materials to sew with. Then sometimes they would bring materials from their homes, right? Like if there was a shirt that belonged to the husband who disappeared, they would bring a little piece. Sometimes even the bone that they used to cook their soup with was going to be part of their embroidery. That bone served as as uh, a decoration. Um, in, in the same thing in Colombia, it was... The nuns in this neighborhood that I mentioned before in Comuna 13 that provided the space for women to come and get together and get the psychological help that they needed. Um, so it's church acting as facilitator as opposed to director. Yes. Right. And, and that's a big distinction. So that religion not as authority, but religion as a source of communal um, assessment or not assessment. That's not the word I want, but of communal a- uh, asset as a communal asset. Sure. Advocates. Advocates. Yeah. And, and supporters. You know, we, we, you know, when I work with marginalized people, communities like this, there is a lot of pain, you know, like if their children disappeared, you know, people start questioning why are they still alive when their children and the people that they love are no longer there. And it is through acts of faith that they are actually able to continue to live because they don't get this emotional, psychological support that they will need. So church continues to be a, a, a big part of Latin America, a big, um, you know, part of, you know, getting together and perform this art. On the other hand, yes, more and more the um, people get together to do art for other reasons, right? Like I, I visited this group of men and they decided to do crochet and um, knitting because they felt that men didn't have spaces of dialogue and they wanted to have a place to talk like women do. And it is a very, very successful uh, thing, you know, where a lot of men uh, who are, some of them are gay and some of them are not, and they're able to meet and to talk. That is amazing because in Latin America, it's really hard for men to talk about other things that are not sports. And the same thing in a certain, here in the United States, you know, it's, uh, you know, men talk about those things, sports and and it's, it's hard for them to talk about feelings. Yeah, that's back to your earlier concern around the blending of emotion and rationality and feeling and thinking and how they go together or or when one is missing 
what a loss that is to our creative process. I'm going to bring it back to that creative process because it really seems to require both thinking and feeling to produce um, the power that art can evoke. Is Is that going too far or is that what I've... No, not at all. I mean, um, then I'm also thinking about um, a lot of art in Central America, you know, like a lot of the graffiti and the murals also represent people who are key to uh, the community. And a lot of these graffitis are about members of the church who have been uh, killed because of their support to to the community. So, it, it, you know, again, I it, this is not a religious act, but I believe that when the church has taken the, the role of protectors of the community, the community really um, wants to remember these people. Um, and then there is uh, other there are other movements like women's movements who feel that um, the church, especially the Catholic Church, takes away their rights, mm-hmm. their rights to their own body, their rights to to get access to uh, basic health care, right? Um, Even within the church, the right to participate fully is denied women. Yeah. Um, by by the fact that you can't become a priest, it, the, the symbolic oppression of women is nobody misses it, right? There's it's so visual, it's so apparent that authority resides with men, um, and until there's a change in that, it will it will be very hard for women not to feel the oppression of the church. Yes. Even as you're making this distinction of protector, but they live side by side. That protection is often authoritarian um, and is certainly traditionally through t- teachings been authoritarian uh, with the claim of protector. Yeah. And nuns obviously don't have the same power. And they most of, a lot of them operate under the same patriarchal rules, right, of of. of of the church, right? Um, and, you know, they definitely um, for gay um, women, for lesbians, it's really hard, uh, you know, to belong to a church. You know, if it is hard for all people in the LGBTQ, uh, lesbians and transgender women definitely have a, a really hard time. So a lot of this art, you know, talks against uh, religion and against the patriarchy and against, uh, you know, all those aspects of society that continue to keep women in the minority as second-class citizens, right? It's um, If it's that way in the United States, in Latin America, where... We have um, not only the patriarchy, but a colonial system. It is felt strongly. Yeah. And, and looking for ways to express one's self and find oneself is hard in, under those circumstances. I mean, I think that's been what feminists have been railing against for a long time a room of one's own how how old is that book now 
uh, Virginia Woolf wrote that. I, I won't come up with the right date. But, I mean, that's what she's talking about in essential ways of finding the space to discover yourself through your art. Um, in her case, it was writing, but in many cases, it's just that ability to express oneself is denied um, under authoritarian regimes, whether they are religious or political, it doesn't really matter. Um, and so to see these women struggling to use their skills and the um, limited access they have to claim their power is really inspiring. Yeah, and we haven't talked about young women. Um, um, you know, very recently I have met young women, 19, 18, 20, and they are also doing murals against femicide, you know, because it is a big deal and we don't talk enough about femicide. And, it, you know, sometimes when we talk about I don't, this... I'm not even sure my listeners will know what femicide is. Do you want to define that? Sure. So femicide as uh, a theory that came um, from here from the United States is the killing of women for the sake of being women. However, in a lot of theorists from Latin America, they have expanded this. Uh, femicide, or what we call fem feminicide, which is the Spanish equivalent, uh, also denounces the system that allows for women to be killed, right? So it's not only that a man kills a woman for private or public reasons, it's that there is a whole system that protects these this people, right? They, um, and then now we're talking about feminicidal violence that is not only about the killing of the person, but also other forms of violence that 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 seek to eliminate women for example uh, this tendency around the world uh, of burning women's faces with um, acid because of i don't know vengeance or because honor. of hate honor etc but also denying them access to healthcare, for example, is what we consider feminicidal violence because if women don't have access to healthcare, they will probably die. Uh, and I'm not only thinking about uh, abortion, but, but even going into labor can be deadly for many, many women. And when you start digging into this, who are the women who suffer mostly for from um, death in labor? And it's a lot of minority women here in the United States. A lot of African-American women die in labor. And then you start thinking, okay, so is this a, 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 a racist system? And then what we have discovered in Latin America and through all the theory is that racism and femicide or feminicide come hand in hand. So it's, it's all related. Yeah. The intersectionality there is overwhelming. The correlation between poverty and second-class status um, and the d diminution of women's work and the value of women's work is all part of that 
problem that gives rise to it. The violence in the United States against women is astronomical. I, I don't have any statistics in front of me, but they're easily accessed. And this is part of, I mean, every woman's experienced some fear of being hurt or, you know, in, stands in the way of violence in an ordinary kind of experience for women to be careful all the time because of the possibility of being hurt, physically yeah. hurt. This is not uh, this is not something women don't know about, right? That yeah, you know, we're aware walking through the garage after dark, right? We're oh, aware yeah. cro- going for a run at night. Yeah, and we'll be blamed, right? If something happens, women yeah. will be. What were you doing out at that time of night? Mm-hmm. The the question needs to be reversed. Why can't I go out at night? Yeah. I, uh, I I'm sorry I interrupted you no, 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 to no, ask no. you to define it. Now, do you think we can get back to what you were saying? Well, were... I I I think that you know one of the things that I love about uh, the movements in Latin America is how everybody in Latin America today knows about femicide, feminicide, and feminicidal violence because women are doing the work. Women come out. They march, they sing, they dance on the streets. You go anywhere. In Chile, not long ago, they uh, sang this song that became viral. It was called A Rapist in My Path. And there were all these women doing this performance and showing how uh, everywhere they looked, there would be a rapist. The rapist was the police officer, the, the president, the neighbor, Your the boss. judges, everybody, everybody. Um, and you don't even have to go to Chile. You can look at samples here in the United States every day. Who gets protected after a rape? Who walks free so many times? Who is blamed so many times, as you say, right? Um, and who is put in doubt, right? Because women's words are always, you know, put in doubt. You yeah. know, they, they, you know, women are liars. They're crazy. That's what they call them. They call uh, the women of Plaza de Mayo, all the mothers in Argentina who came out during the dictatorship to demand that, that the government tell them, um, what happened to their children that they they took, and they called them the crazy women. Um, in in fact, you know there there was there is a new film in, in Argentina, nineteen eighty five, that talks about this. Um, it's in Amazon Prime. Uh, in one of the mothers of Plaza de Mayo, one of the founders passed away yesterday. Heve Monafede. So, um, you know, there are just things that have happened in the past, but that continue to be so important today, right? And that we cannot forget because sometimes we have a tendency of believing that these things are not relevant, but we need to be aware of what is relevant and how, what can we do to get together with other people so that 
our rights are not taken away. Rights that affect us as women, but us as humans too, right? I always feel that, um, you know, no matter how much we get together, if the men in our lives do not support our causes, then we're not going to change this. If we don't educate our children um, in the ways of equality, then we're not going to make changes. I do think that that the Iranian protests right now are so inspiring in that way. And they echo uh, back to Argentina and the mothers in the square. But to see all those young men standing with the young women has been really inspiring and and exhilarating and I mean in the horror of it um and I just was reading about so many are being blinded by these pellets these rubber pellets but it's men and women together as you say and and that seems to be kind of a a, a new contribution of this particular set of protests that we're seeing. Um, and we saw, well, I mean, it's not entirely new. We saw with the George Floyd protests and the Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movement and this confluence of men and women um, showing their concern for um, this, the, the treatment of others, regardless of their st- you know, status. Yes. And, um, you know, 2019 was a a year for Latin America where all these protests started to happen in definitely in Chile, Colombia, in Mexico. And again, that repression of the governments that they will come out with these rubber bullets and shoot at young people's eyes. Uh, So there are many, many young people who nowadays have that scar to show of this violence against them because they're protesting for their rights. I mean, my understanding is I'm I'm not sure that I I have it right or I, I get a little confused, but my understanding is that they use buckshot rubber pellets so that you don't even have to aim for their eye, that the scattershot is inevitably going to hit people in the eye. So and somehow that's worse to me that there's this this thought that let's get a kind of bullet that will do the most damage um, and it requires no skill, mm-hmm. right? It's something about if you had to aim at somebody's eye, yeah. it would be harder to do. But this is ensured that you're going to inflict violence with no skill. That's horrifying. It is. It's it is. horrifying. It is. Constanza, I, we have come to the end of our time. We've, we get, we're going to get closed down. But um, before we end, I don't know if I asked you this beforehand because you and I had many back and forth trying to put this together. But I usually ask us to end our little conversations with a story about how you ruined dinner. It can be a good story. It can be a bad story. But do you do you have one off the top of your head that you can share with us to close out our conversation? Well, I think I'm always ruining dinner. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, um, you know, it's, it's funny because... When 
you, my daughter says I ruined her life, literally. <laughs> uh, and the reason why he says it, and he says that he loves it, the fact that I ruined her life, is because every time that he came home to tell me something, regardless of what it was, and I do this with my students, I always told, tell them the other side of things. But have you thought mm, about this, right? And now some of these people that have been under my influence, they said, now I cannot see things in one way. Now I have to see the other things. And, and all they wanted was your support, but yes. you forced them to think. Yeah, uh, and you know, I like this song and I'm like, but have you really listened to that song and what it says? <laughs> And yeah, so I ruined people's songs and I ruined people's uh, shopping experiences <laughs> and um, oh. and they, they still love me. So that's great. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Constanza, I'm so happy we got to have this conversation. And I'm so happy I got to see the, the embroidering for peace and... Uh, the, the whole experience was very moving. And I'm glad I got to meet your son and daughter there supporting you that day. Yes. yes. So, um, I just wanted to let you know that if anybody wants to see the um, embroidery, they can visit the um, Embroidery for Peace and Memory website. And you just search UNF Embroidery for Peace and Memory. Um, and and I'll, also, put it, I'll link it on the notes, yes. the show notes. And also, uh, I'm look for me uh, during October. I'm going to be outside, hopefully Peace Plaza or the Green or somewhere around campus where you see all this embroidery hanging. You just can approach and join. Great. Thanks again. Okay. Bye. Thank you. Bye.